Blog Talk Radio. This is our common ground, alternative activist empowerment talk radio, speaking truth to power and ourselves. Who are you? You don't know. Don't tell me Negro, that's nothing. What were you before the white man named you a Negro? And where were you? And what did you have? What was yours? What language did you speak then? I am a revolutionary. It's about what we didn't do. Amen. Then it speaks to us and the possibility for us as a future person. Because ultimately, our people's future resides on what we do outside of the White House. African descent family, America failed. She put them in chains. The government put them on slave quarters, put them on action block, auction blocks, put them in cotton fields, put them in inferior schools, put them in substandard housing, put them in scientific experience, experiments, put them in the lowest paying jobs, put them outside the equal protection of the law, kept them out of their racist bastions of higher education, and locked them into positions of hopelessness and helplessness. The government gives them the drugs, builds bigger prisons, passes a three-strike law, and then wants us to sing God Bless America? No, no, no. Not God Bless America. God... Our Common Ground with Janice Graham. Our Common Ground, speaking truth to power and ourselves. Our Common Ground, a higher ground for discourse, discussion, solutions, and ideas. I'm Janice Graham, and I'll be listening for you. Talk, talk, that matters. 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 Transforming truth truth to power. One broadcast broadcast at a time. And now to Our Common Ground with Janice Graham. And we thank you for being with us here on Our Common Ground, a sacred place where we bring the black truth into the focus of how we look at our nation and our world. Thank you so very much for being here at Our Common Ground. Tonight we have a very exciting program for you and we'll tell you Uh, more about that, but as we come into this week's program, I do want to apologize for not having a live broadcast last week. Uh, We hope that you enjoyed uh, our wonderful, um, brilliant chronicle of Our Common Ground episodes in our archives. Um, You can find our brother, Dick Gregory, our sister, Dr. Um, Welsing, you can find um, all the black thinkers of our time at Our Common Ground. This is our 29th year 
of broadcasting live. As we come into the program tonight, uh, Darren Wilson still remains free. Stay woke, folks. Stay woke. And also, we want to point out uh, globally, massive voter fraud found in Scotland today where many, many ballots uh, of voters in uh, Scotland on the issue of independence were trashed. Sounds familiar. Um, Since our last broadcast, there have been four unarmed black men killed by police or security officers in this country. We want to ask the question, if you stay woke, and where is Eric Holder and our president on this issue? Uh, The United States has set in stone since our last broadcast black men as the face of domestic violence. There is no doubt that there were opportunities uh, for doing so, and they have done so through the media, and we hope that you're not buying into that uh, issue. As a matter of fact, there are 12 times more police officers in this country who are perpetrators and batterers, partner relationships, than there are football players or basketball players who are black. Um, And I am still looking for the protest, the massive protest, uh, against this government's stance on opening up a new war, on not opening up the issue of the prison industrial complex and not raising the issue and changing the narrative on the school-to-prison pipeline in American education for our children. Stay woke, folks. Just stay woke. We have got to begin to take on our own war. And there is no doubt that there is a civil war going on in this country, and we need to stay woke. So thank you for being with us. Keep those things in mind as we move into a new week. Tonight at Our Common Ground, we're going to be exploring the issue of black male feminism and black liberation, a dialogue between two scholars whom I have great respect for their both their scholarship and for their manhood. Dr. David Eichard, a professor of African American literature at the University of Miami, Florida, and Dr. Tommy J. Curry, a professor of philosophy and critical race theory uh, from the Texas A&M University, uh, will be leading the discussion. Uh, and having a dialogue about the issue, the theory of black male feminism. So I'm going to raise some questions before we bring them along. What is a black male feminist? Do you know? 
Have you given it much thought? How does the theory of black male feminism inform the practice of black liberation? How do black men perform masculinity? Is it wrapped in the way in which they understand their blackness or vice versa? Does and can black male feminism clear the way for black men to free themselves from the stranglehold of what we understand as a traditional masculinity? And there's another question that I have. Does it, it, does it ignite a path to a more concise black male leadership to black liberation? And we're going to attempt to explore these questions this week on Our Common Ground uh, with um, Dr. Eichard and Dr. Curry tonight because I think it's very important. It's just certainly critical as we begin to look at some of the issues before us and and more recent, uh, the issue of both discipline and physical and corporal punishment and the historical framework under which some of us rest about why we beat our children and why we beat our wives and why we abuse our husbands. Let me tell you a little about Dr. David Eichardt and Dr. Tommy J. Curry. Both of them have been guests and are as we say, our common ground voices. Dr. Icard, David, is a professor of American literature at the University of Miami in Florida. He is the author of Breaking the Silence Toward a Black Male Feminist Criticism and Blinded by the Whites, Why Race Still Matters in 21st Century America. He is also the author of A Nation of Cowards, and he has been with us to discuss all three of those very, very important pieces of research and literature in in our country. Um, his research interests include black gender studies, cultural criticism, hip-hop culture, and post-racial politics. In his book, Breaking the Silence Toward a Black Male Feminist Criticism, he considers the role of black men in black feminist politics, and we're going to be talking with him about how that is illuminated through the lens of African-American literature and theory. Um, in his Nation of Cowards, he explores what it means to be black in Barack Obama's post-racial America and in that book, he looks at the disconnect between the national hype over President Barack Obama's historical election to the presidency and the ever-increasing economic and, I would say, mental distress of the black community. Um, and, of course, the book title comes out of the famous Attorney General Eric Holder's speech where he broached the controversy, the uh, controversy in his rage speech, when he um, lingered on a thought that we are a nation of cowards when it comes to race. Dr. Tommy J. Curry 
is a professor of philosophy at Texas A&M University and critical race theorist who engages in the study of black people at Texas A&M University with both his students and his research. His teaching, research, and writing spans various fields of philosophy, jurisprudence, Africana studies, and gender studies. His work spans across various fields of, though trained in American and continental philosophical traditions, Dr. Curry's primary research interests are in critical race theory and Africana philosophy. Um, and we we are just so pleased to have both these um, learned scholars with us tonight, David Eichard and Tommy Curry. Thank you once again for joining us on Our Common Ground. Yes, ma'am. Thanks for David, are me. you there? Well, I'm so pleased to have, you know, I call you guys my bromance. <laughs> I can do that. I can do that. People people who are listening to the show to this program need to know I can do that. I can do anything I want to do because last week I signed up for Medicare. <laughs> That's going to be my excuse for the next year. From now on. Uh, That's right. Don't ask me. I told my grandson, don't ask me why I said it because I said it cuz I'm signed up for Medicare. Yes, you Thank you, gentlemen, it. for for joining us. Absolutely. We, as we as we move into this whole issue of black male feminism and black liberation, one of the things I want both of you to do is to give us a framework of what we mean by black male feminism. Why don't I ask you, David, to go, and then Tommy, you can follow. Sure. Uh, sure. What? Okay. Uh, yeah, um, uh, Femi, you have to understand that black feminism is based on this idea of intersectionality, right? Um, this idea that our um, subject positions as uh, oppressed people um, intersect not just in terms of race and class, but also in terms of gender and sexuality, and that what what black women realize, you know, uh, particularly, you know, as the movement uh, got some legs in the ninth, late 1960s and early 1970s, was that even as they were cheerleading very hard and on the front lines marching with black men for um, civil rights, um, they were part of the Black Panther movement, um, Black liberation movements and at, at all levels, even as they were um, battling with the mainstream white feminists to be recognized as women, as, as oppressed folks within the context of of, of their um, being women, that primarily they were not getting visibility as black women within both contexts of that movement in terms of their unique oppression as not just black folks, not just women, but as black women, and particularly in some cases um, queer black women and working class um, folks. And so part of what they were trying to bring attention to was the fact that even as they had strong allegiances with black men and recognized that white privilege was an issue with their their um, 
their white feminist sisters, and they 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 maintain st- strong allegiances to both in terms of wanting to fight sexism, but also uh, very strongly wanting to fight uh, racism and, and structural inequalities and support their black brothers. But they also wanted to make sure that their positions as women and the the experiences of oppression they 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 had not just within mainstream white America, but also in terms of um, of the black community, male-dominated, male-centric black community, was also recognized so that there was a space for them to talk about things like domestic violence. There was a space for them to talk about the exploitation of, of black women's um, 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 experiences, labor, even both without and within black spaces within white spaces, even within white feminist spaces um, um, in, uh, in that context. And the, and the one thing that they tried to really underscore was that they were not emasculators. They were not trying to belittle or undermine black men, but part of what they were trying to do was to get recognized within the context of their struggle um, so that the, their unique experiences were also registered within the context of oppression, and their chief argument was that if black women were liberated, then by default black men, black women, uh, queer communities, uh, the working class would also be liberated. Okay, hmm. so in the way from from what you have just described, uh, Dr. Eichhardt, one of the things is that fundamentally you're talking about the nature of gender inequality Mm-hmm. With a dimension of 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 looking at social roles, sociology, and economics. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. Because the okay. because you know, yeah. Absolutely. So we're um, not talking about in in terms of the way in which you frame black male feminism. We're not talking about the traditional. Uh, elements in which white women talk about feminism. Mm-mm. No, I mean what's in, what's important about black men who are in feminism um, is that you know part of what part of what black men and, and black male feminism is designed to do. It's really to be supportive of the idea that there are elements of conventional a masculinity which black men have embraced, even as they're fighting against you know things like police brutality and all the things that we know um, comes with um, being a black man in America. But they're also aware that there needs to be a, a serious overhaul of what we consider masculine, what we consider mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, what we consider hit a household, what we consider manly because. Oftentimes, what's lost in the, in our fight for 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 racial equality is that some of our models of what it means to be a man are very skewed, and skewed to the extent to which being a man uh, mandates dominating and subjugating women, and so oftentimes that particular kind of discussion about what's problematic about. Um, black men's notions of masculinity, which which frankly are taken from kind of the mainstream white white male notions of of, of domination and and um, 
and, 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 and being conquerors is uh, hurtful to our sisters and ultimately hurtful to our communities. And ultimately, as, as black feminists would say, it actually undermines our fight for um, equality because any the black feminist, a black feminist would argue, is that any um, any uh, any and all oppression uh, support um, the overall system of domination. So even if you're anti-racist, if you're pro-sexist, right? If you're pro-sexist, then in fact that undermines your ability to fight against racism because. Just like all of oppressions intersect, all dynamics of domination intersect too. So you can't just tell, uh-huh. you can't just come at the system piecemeal and, and and choose which types of oppression that you want to eliminate, which types of oppression you want to see that benefit you. That all has to be addressed holistically. Okay, Dr. Curry. Yes, ma'am. What is how do you frame this? this concept of black male feminism. And and one of the things I, I, I do want to make sure that we understand that black male feminism may be a different model than black female feminism. Right, right. Because well, think- black men black men are objectified, they are oppressed and the stereotyping is is different. So right. when you come into focusing on analyzing gender inequality faced by men, black men, as opposed to faced by black female, there may be some shading of differences, and there's clearly an intersectionality. Mm-hmm. But I, I think I want to try to make sure the audience, uh, our listeners, understand that we're and, and and Dr. Eichard has made it very clear that we are not talking about that traditional form of white women's theorists you know, throwing out your bra and burning your bra or whatever you're doing. Right. Because the object the the, the whole sociology is different. Right. So how do you how do you frame this concept? Well I think I think a few things uh kind of have to be challenged in the historiography of how we read gender generally. Uh, you know, I noticed David, uh, or Dr. Eckert, uh started with a, a history of the Civil Rights Movement. But, I mean, if we are serious about intersectionality, we know these things started well before that. Uh, we have black women uh, participating, participating in the Atlanta Sociological Laboratory, specifically studying black women, children, birth rates, et cetera, uh, in sociology. We have a large discussion uh, in the 1900s, you know, off the back of uh, Anna Julia Cooper, Ida B. Wells' work that's implicating, you know, or using some of the techniques you get from T. Thomas Fortune. So I think that when we talk about intersectionality, we can't get caught up in two things, either the kind of pop terminology that we have now about the kind of multiplicity of oppressions as if all things can be dealt with conceptually in one broad stroke, uh, as if, well, we talk about racism, we're talking about sexism, we're talking about capitalism, as if, you know, someone could just conceptualize and solve all these things at once. And I think the other more important uh, part about 
about that is to understand that gender does not simply mean female. Uh, I think that one of the ways that feminism and black male feminism specifically aligns itself is that it assumes that to be gendered is to be a female. And while it gives acknowledgement to the other bodies, queer, queer bodies, or male bodies generally, uh, it solidifies or ontologizes. It makes these things permanent as if uh, masculinity always equals certain privileges over women and that we analyze it from that perspective. So I think that when we're having conversations about uh, feminism generally and moving into the 1950s, 60s, et cetera, and you know, dealing with the civil rights movement, then we have to remember that black feminism was not the only challenge that black women raised either against civil rights or against masculinity. Uh, there were many black women that were writing before this, Joyce Ladner, LaFrances, Rogers Rose, you know, even Kathleen Cleaver is very clear about this point that in the civil rights movement, the question wasn't just gender, but the systems that propped gender up. And while we can classify and concentrate on the category of gender now, that certainly didn't speak to the time uh, that that was going on. So, I mean, you have people like, you know, Joyce Ladner, who, you know, has been on the program before, doing work on black girls uh, in Tomorrow's Tomorrow. This is years before uh, the research was done, years before we got Michelle Wallace's uh, Black Macho, but she's erased from the history. Uh, you have Frances Rogers Rose publishing The Black Woman, asking the question, why is black feminism getting the attention for studying or starting the study of black women when we've done all this empirical research for the last two decades? So I think that when we talk about black feminism, we talk about a generalizable idea that in many ways tries to encapsulate all the ideas of black women that are challenging patriarchy, that are challenging class, that are challenging racism, white supremacy, etc. But we're leaving out the nuance that some of these black women rejected feminism, that some of these black women participated in the SNCC and rejected the idea that there was a black feminism or that black feminism actually spoke seriously about their gender. Uh, and I think that when we're talking about equality or we're talking about the role that black women have played in equality, that we have to be very careful about those types of historical broad brushes. They may play a role in how we want our disciplines to value the type of ideas and the type of thoughts that we're putting forward, but they don't necessarily capture all of history. And when you talk about men in that context, right, we need a much more nuanced understanding of men's relationship to patriarchy. I think the large assumption is that black men simply uh, black men simply imitate, that they simply reproduce um, white masculinity. And I think that a serious reading of history anywhere from uh, Du Bois forward uh, in the Black Male Burden Associations, in the poetry, uh, in the various notions of black masculinity that we've gotten from there even into the black power movement uh, tell a very different story. I think that what feminism does a lot of times is that it tries to encapsulate all ideas of gender or all ideas of masculinity as it's simply an extension of white patriarchy. And I find those arguments um, extremely generic and historically inaccurate especially when we have so much work being done in black power studies. We have so much work being done empirically in sociology and psychology. They're showing that black men historically have just not had the same views of masculinity that white men have had. And when you look at that next to the types of organizations that black men started, uh, you'll hear that in terms of uh, what black men have sacrificed, how they supported black women. It tells a very different history than the types of history you're getting coming out of uh, things like the humanities, liberal arts, women and gender studies that really don't take the historical nuance or the research in history about black men and black women seriously. So I think that it's a it's a political and disciplinary program that uh, certainly lends itself to the historical arguments that were made in the 1970s and 80s about the marginalization of black women and the relationship that black men have to black women. But I don't think that it captures accurately the historical or sociological depth of either the black men that are working with black women, black civil rights, including the black power movement, and the historical notion we have of black masculinity. It simply doesn't take those things into account. So 
when uh, to both of you, I'd like to hear you talk more about the issue of whether or not this whole system, whether or not it's the same kind of subject, uh, uh, subordination of identity, mm. and whether or not. Let me hear you talk about how black men are systematically subordinated and mm. how black male feminism or the 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 character of feminism mm-hmm. addresses that. Absolutely. Well, let me let me jump in here, uh, Janet. I I I I'm trying to jump out so the two of you can have this discussion. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I take a bit a, a bit of exception to uh, what I think was a rather uh, problematic mischaracterization of, of the way in which I contextualize the argument of, of black feminism. Um, certainly, black women have been fighting for the right um, to be recognized within the context of the humanity and their subjectivity um, um, since, you know, we were brought over um, on, on ships, I mean, literally since the beginning of slavery. So the the idea that somehow this, when I was talking about the 1960s and 1970s, and particularly talking about a political moment in which organizations and a political philosophy around, um, you know, uh, constructing a platform to address issues of, of patriarchy within black spaces. I wasn't, you know, suggesting that somehow uh, that is the sum total of, of the historical mm-hmm. trajectory of um, black women's uh, struggle for equality. And I also want to address what I see as a very kind of false binary between um, black women who are feminists um, fighting for uh, acknowledgement of their subjectivities as 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 black women within the context with them with with within and beyond the spaces of 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 uh, patriarchal society because while the, the very reason that we can have these conversations and think differently about masculinity and think differently about women's black women's places within this uh larger political discourse is primarily because of the black feminist movement. It's because I had a director who um was telling, you know, and Nellie McKay for whom, you know, in the in the nineteen seventies they had to pass around um um uh, Zorna Hurston's or Eyes Watching God because it was not in print. They uh, were uh, systemically responsible. I mean, the small cadre of women were responsible for resurrecting the work of Zorna Hurston, Anna Julia Cooper, you know, um, um, Hopkins, all of these folks because of their tireless work. They brought in, and people like, Alice Walker, for example, who understood that feminism carried a lot of political baggage because it was also the movement in which a lot of white women were asserting their white privilege within the context 
of a white patriarchal system. So she came up with the term womanism to talk about the unique ways that black women have positioned themselves within black within and without black spaces and to reclaim the kind of um the kind the kind of resistance that black women exhibited in those kinds of spaces. So it, it, this to create this kind of I- idea that black women are opposed to feminism without contextualizing that, right? They might be composed to um, the kind of white uh, privileged version of feminism that that, that bl- white women brought to bear on the issue. But make no mistake, without the very uh, without the arguments that are being made about black women's subjectivity and their value, we're not even having a conversation about an Anna Julia Cooper. We're not having a conversation about an Alice Walker. We're not having a conversation about a Toni Morrison. We're not having a conversation even about construction of masculinity. And let's also be clear about this, too. When even today, if you fast forward to this particular moment, when we start thinking about the support for black men, right, when we think about what has just happened in Ferguson and we think about who comes to the support of black men, it is always black women in this context. I mean, some of my most, I mean, fierce, some of my most fierce feminist colleagues like Brittany Cooper and, and Trevor Lindsay, these people who are part of a, 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 a crop feminist collective are are coming to the aid of black women, men who are fighting in this context, and and we don't see that reciprocity when our sisters are coming under assault. And this is not something that is just a a contemporary phenomenon. This is something that has a long historical. Trend. Well, see, and, and I think, and and this is the problem, though, right? Like I think that when you tell history in such a way that makes broad strokes. Uh, without any contextualization about what black men didn't do, right, that it creates a, a huge problem. So by you saying, for instance, that there were not black women who were against black feminism, uh, it disregards the arguments that people like uh, Oyewumi have made. It disregards the scholarship of the 70s uh, that you get from someone like Alison uh, Edwards. It disregards the arguments uh, that you're having even between Paula Giddings and her review of Michelle Wallace's Black Macho, right? That is an that's an incorrect statement to suggest that all black women who were interested in black women and black women's liberation are by default feminists, right? And this is Valethea Beatty. I didn't, uh, I didn't Beatty. say they were by. I didn't. Brother, no, 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 no. I but you're, but you're suggesting, oh, please, Doctor Vicker, you you got your time to speak. Please, let me, please let me explain. My my position is that to suggest that there is not an intellectual and historical as well as political differentiation between the activity that black women have made within organizations or different traditions like Marxism, Pan-Africanism, etc., and then to say that that means that there has to be a parallel with the black feminist movement, either in the terms of what they aspire to or what they're turn, trying to open up for other black women, is just historically false. Now, to, qu- what, to what, say I, that there's wait, a causality, I'm speaking. I'm still I speaking. To, I, I listen to you now, right? No, 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 no. Now, what I'm, I'm, now, what I'm to, saying I'm is that to, to in, suggest. I'm not, trying to, I'm not trying to intervene on what you're saying. Uh-huh. I, I want. I want. To, I'm seeking some clarity now. When you say when you say it's historically false, can you contextualize what you mean by that? Good. I'm, I'm giving you specific arguments that people are making. Ellison Edwards' arguments with you know Michelle Wallace about the Black Module. Paula Giddings' arguments. Which was, which, which was that she thought that it was uh, akin to the KKK breaking up the movement. She said that it lacked nuance. And you think that's legitimate? And that's legitimate. Uh, the same way. The, any, I don't think it's any less legitimate than making the claim that black men are fighting for civil rights based on sexual desire or to sleep with white women. I think that's an inculcation of the 1950 rhetoric about black civil rights that you see in Birth of the Nation. 
I mean, if you talk about Paula Giddings, suggesting that it's not a historically well-researched document, saying that she cut the quote off from Harriet Tubman, that she said that black men are going to do this, but also says that we should only trust white women in matters of politics, right? I mean, there's a lot of historical nuance between these types of debates. Joyce Ladner saying that gender is a function of class and racial sentiment, that these are things that we can study empirically, and that this is not a categorical break between black men and black women. You go on to, to you know, Dale Thornton saying that we need to study gender sociologically. These are not ontological issues, that we know that black women are at the bottom because they fall on the bottom in terms of economics, education, right now, um, in terms of how we study society. That's not, they are fundamentally disagreeing with a prior arguments that are being made today and that were starting to be made in their time. Now, what I'm suggesting is that if we're going to have a serious discussion about black feminism and black women, then we can't just say things like, without these black women or without black feminism, these things would have never happened. That's completely incorrect. I mean, we know about Drusilla Dungy Houston because of the work of John Henry Clark. We don't even talk about people like Carol Bonday or the students at W.E.B. Du Bois, despite the fact that he had several black women do their dissertations. We don't talk about Adela Hunt, despite the fact that he published their work in the Atlanta Sociological Laboratory. So to suggest that black feminism is the only cause that we have black female scholarship and talking about issues of gender in the academy is just manifestly historically false. Now, if you want to talk about different arguments about what black feminism has done specifically in the academy, then I'll say I grant that because black feminism has become the majoritarian discourse about gender in the university. But that's a disciplinary argument. That's an argument about what we teach in universities, what we teach in classes. That's not an argument about who have chronicled and, and created different sources of knowledge outside the university in black sources to talk about black women. Because a lot of these things, as you well know, doing black feminism, exists outside of the published literature in the university. So I think that if we're going to have that, if we're going to try to have that conversation, then we have to kind of extend it beyond what we mean when we're trying to have the talking points or the rationalizations about black feminism as being good. And we have to talk about what black women and black men have historically done overall. And this is like the same thing applies in terms of how we talk about black masculinity. I mean, when we look at the black power studies books, I mean, there was an excellent dissertation that was just written about um, from Rondi Gaines about um, Faluni Ali and the New Republic. We find all kind of support for black women within these revolutionary programs. She was the president of the new of, of, of the Republic of New Africa, and that's off the back of Robert F. Williams, who in fact became radical and took up a program of self defense precisely because he was an NAACP lawyer, and they would not convict for uh, two white men that raped four black women. Right? I mean, so if you if you suggest to us, if you suggest to the black population that black men have never showed up for black women, then I think we need to have very that, real that examples. That is not. That is not. You you what made, I you have said suggested. the statement. You that, said, that, hold on, Doctor Ickert. You did not say in Ferguson that, not, that you see that, people, that you see the Pink Films Collective showing up for black men, and we have historically not reciprocated. That that and is it, it is it is when you look at the ways in which. Um, the Black Power Movement. What was the thing that uh, uh, Huey Newton said that the uh, only um, position that Black women can have within the Black Power Movement, uh, movement was prone? Mm-hmm. The way that the way that um, Michelle Wallace is talking about the Black Macho. I mean, part of what she was addressing, and part of what we continue to see, whether you're talking about in hip hop culture whether you're talking about, in, as we see now, in football culture, whether we're talking about the ways in which we conceptualize um, um, uh, uh, masculinity and what makes one uh, strong, the idea that, you know, the, the, the idea that's still very much dominant in black spaces that 
situate black men as breadwinners. You can't, I mean, it's one thing to talk about the Frederick Douglasses of the world, the James Baldwins of the world, right? And even to a lesser degree, the the, the boyses of the world, even though WDB boyses, uh, um, um, gender problems have been well documented. Hazel Carby wrote a whole um, yeah, book I'm very familiar with Hazel Carby's work. At, 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 um, about Du Bois' problematic gender politics. So we can always, I mean, it's, if you want to selectively talk about black men who have, you know, been supportive of black women, oh, sure, we can, we, can, we can talk about that. But if you want to talk more critically about a particular culture. I mean, we look at uh, Moynihan's report, in which Daniel Moynihan uh, uh, put out a report talking about, you know, what, you know, 1960s, uh, about what, how do we, how do we fix, he made the argument, how do we fix the black nuclear family? And, and one of the things that, that he argued that was a problem with the black family was that it was a matriarchy that black 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 women were uh, so dominant in in uh, black families that they were emasculating black men, and a lot of civil rights leaders, including Martin Luther King, right and Abernathy, actually supported that. That uh, well, I mean, again, and, and and most recently, Barack Obama even said that Daniel Moynihan was right. So. It, it's one thing to talk about black men, and, and I, you know, if, if you know anything about my work, I always talk about that there have there has been a support of black women. It's not that all black men think uniformly in this way, but when you start thinking about culture, when you start right. thinking the ways in which gender, particularly masculinity and femininity, is constructed, then these dynamics of the erasure of black women's suffering, it, it really is beyond, it, it really is undeniable. Right, and, and see, and that's what I think is the problem, right? Like you gave me, so you gave me two or three examples, right, saying that we need to look at culture, but you may know account of the work that's been done for two decades. People like Kathleen Blee's arguments in 1995 that black men have very little in common with white men in terms of their masculinity. Even even research done by a black feminist in political science, Evelyn Simon, who's talking about the black gender gap, who's argued that black men are even more progressive than black women on intersectional issues in our own communities, right? I mean, Steve S's book, Am I a Man? Race, Manhood, and Civil Rights Movement. I mean, Daniel McGuire's book, At the Dark End of the Street. All these show that historically black men have showed up for black women in civil rights. She gives the story of Joan Little. She gives the story of, uh, you know, of, of, of Rosa Parks, who was sent there by the NAACP to, to talk, uh, to investigate Reese Taylor. And black men from the port, uh, the Brotherhood of Porter, uh, of, of car porters to uh, black men in the socialist movement all showed up for these specific incidences. If we go back to the turn of the century, you see the same thing, right? So, you, again, you're, you're giving me a history where you're saying that I'm being selective, and I'm actually telling you, here are the specific debates, here's the arguments, here's the literature that's saying that what you're claiming exists as a narrative in things like English or women and gender studies or more liberal arts isn't panning out when we look at things like political science, sociology, and history. So I'm questioning well, I, the basis. I, I would by, hold on, I would Dr. you're interrupting again. I'm questioning the basis by which that type of mythology works. Now, even people like Kathleen Cleaver in the Black Panther Party says that, look, if you, if you make the argument 
that black men were fundamentally sexist in the movement, then it says that you have to demand or you are at least insinuating a certain type of passivity on the women. And she specifically says she specifically quotes that she said there were where where Bobby Seale did a study to show that over two thirds of the movement were women. So if you're going to if you're going to pretend that black people and black women have not been functionally involved and been recognized and making arguments against the mythology that you're perpetuating, then there's nothing that you can actually say about how we can learn from these individuals. Because we're adopting a a narrative and a history that suggests that we don't need nuance. Now, that's not to Mm -hmm. suggest that we don't have problems. You're trying to make a point about Eldridge Cleaver's Black on Ice. Look, Eldridge Cleaver's Soul on Ice, okay, Elvis Cleaver's Soul on Ice, which was undeniably, right, undeniably the Bible of the black nationalist movement. That's completely incorrect. Uh, uh, can he didn't I join finish? the party until 1966. Can I finish? Can I finish? Well, right? I mean, you seem to be very Mal- intent on, on Mal- over-speaking Malcolm me, so, X's, I mean, that's completely Malcolm. false. Okay. I mean, revolutionary can I, can suicide I, denies can I, that. Can I finish? Can I finish, please? Well, I mean, I, I was asking for the I same mean, courtesy, can Dr. I finish? I, I Can I finish? Can, can I? Yeah, go ahead. Okay. Elvis Cleaver's Soul on Night, undeniably, again, the Bible of the black power movement. Uh, Malcolm X's autobiography, again, another central text to the black power movement, right? The mainstream black power movement, people still look to these texts as... Um, and, and when you start talking about the 60s and the 70s as framing the ways in which um, uh, folks were thinking about liberation, Richard Wright's Native Son, all of these major texts, right, even if you go to Du Bois' Soul on Ice, right, all of these major texts situate first and foremost black men at the center of the struggle, but more importantly, more crucially to this context about feminism, Elvis Cleaver is saying that how he felt like the, the, one, of the, one of the strategies of liberating himself as a man was to rape black, white women, and, and that in order to rape black women, one of the things that he did was he practiced raping I'm well aware of that. Black I'm well women. aware, but that's the introduction. Right? Right. That's and not that's have, not the whole thing, and it's X, not the complete you story. Malcolm, you have Malcolm X to make the argument in his autobiography that black that the, the reason why we have black lesbians is because black men are not being man enough, and as black men were being man enough, then these women would turn away from other women and assume their rightful position within a nuclear black family. These are the dominant modes of thinking. Within black, spaces, oh, on what basis can you claim they're dominant? Within on what the basis? U.S. context in the 1960s and 1970s, what I'm saying is is not radical. No, this it's it's pretty standard. Documented. It's pretty standard. But the problem, right. but the problem with that is so this. So what I'm asking is, why are you acting as if what I am saying about the ways in which the black community has traditionally understood struggle and power? Why is that? I mean, 
I mean, because it's, one it's because it's, that, it's, that, it's 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 a mythology that doesn't allow nuance in how black people understand themselves and debate with each other. So your argument, for instance, about Soul on Ice, right? You're absolutely right. right. He believed that rape was an insurrectionist strategy. He says he was wrong. The thing that people don't understand about Cleaver is that he was a homosexual, and that one of the things that he was dealing with, specifically under incarceration, was trying to figure out how he can be part of a black power movement and women's liberation as a gay black man in prison. So this and this this kind of revelation isn't something that people like Huey P. Newton or Bobby Seale didn't reflect upon. But again, the problem that I'm saying is that you encapsulate that as the Bible when anytime you read Bobby Seale or you read Revolutionary Suicide, they're saying that they were suspicious in questioning Eldridge Cleaver's role and how he saw his notion of masculinity within the black power movement. Huey P. Newton specifically said that people thought they attacked black power. They attacked the Black Panther saying they were doing it in their search for manhood without understanding understand they were already men. And I think, again, this is part of the historical context that you get from Steve S.'s book, I'm a Man, where he talks about black men fighting for manhood, fighting for civil rights, was not simply based on the reproduction of white power dynamics, but a resistance to it that was very much gender inclusive. Right? So if you're going to – that's what I'm saying. If you're going to pull text, right, then you have to also pull the text that are responding to the people that are talking about Eldridge Cleaver. The people the, – the, the story of, um, of, of Seal and Newton going to pick uh, – of meeting Cleaver in 1966 where they're saying we didn't know much about this person, but we were immediately struck by the kind of nationalistic favor that he had, and he found out that he was actually in search of masculinity. So if you have people within the party that's questioning his masculinity and how it doesn't represent them or that they have a different view, to suggest that that becomes the Bible of the the Black Panther Party is neither true to the primary text or the research that's being done in black power studies about it, right? And this is what I'm saying about nuance. My argument with you is not that these dynamics don't exist, but my argument is that they are not the dominant dynamics when we look at the complete picture of the arguments that are happening between black men, black women, and black feminism. Now, to suggest that we're going to have to say that simply because a power dynamic exists that is the dominant di dynamic in our communities seems to be extremely reductionistic. And again, that's why I said, how do you answer the arguments that are empirically done by black feminists like Evelyn Simeon, who are saying that black men over the last 20 years show a progressive strain where they're more intersectional and more progressive on certain issues due to the lack of religion and things of that sort than black women? See, we, we uphold a mythology without looking and trying to understand history and sociology within the context of our theories. And I think that that's a large mistake. Right, Because even if you want to read our politics backwards to Du Bois, even though Hazel Carby does make an excellent point on what she takes to be Du Bois' masculinity, she doesn't take into account the way that gender was conceptualized at the turn of the century. People like Gail Biederman have done that. She didn't look at the Atlanta Sociological Laboratory to see what he was learning from those women in the studies that they were doing, supporting people like Gertrude Ware. So if you're going to propose a theory, sir, then you have to make sure that theory has both historical and sociological evidence, not just the assertion that because we see certain phenomena that we can rationalize it if this is the dominant power dynamic in our communities. Let me uh, break in here and kind of give uh, some uh, shirt and tie uh, to this discussion. In my role as a justice activist and a cultural warrior, uh, uh, assisting in creating an anti-sexist, anti-homophobic space, here at Our Common Ground, challenging inequities uh, in our community dialogue and in workplaces for our people, we have to own up to our own failings as we struggle mm -hmm. 
define a mode of progressive black politics. And, and the question really is, in our contemporary setting, as we see this notion of black feminism rising up with uh, mm-hmm. loads of code words, how do we, is it revolutionary in its political orientation, and how does the notion of black feminism fit for the needs of black men mm. and black women and 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 is it bo- is this movement bold in um in 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 its repl- in its in in its ability to replace white male patriarchy or are we looking at some kind of female version complete with its own bigotry and white mm-hmm. skin privilege and I think that's what listeners are really trying to Try get to. to. Um, yeah, I how mean, do we I mean we've got to figure out something innovative for co- coalition building between black males and females absolutely. based upon not only gender equity but community empowerment. Mm -hmm. And we've got, before we have to take a break at the top of the hour, I'd like to hear you talk about how this black male feminism, this this need, and and, and Dr. Curry and Dr. Eichhardt, I think that all of us could agree that the definition given to how black men or the narrative set for how black men articulate and live out their masculinity in our community, for a great degree, the models have to change, and they haven't changed. Mm-hmm. Oh, absolutely. So, oh, yeah. How do we so, hint, absolutely. I mean, so how I, do we I ignite have... a contemporary black feminist model for that can be embraced by both black men and black women. Right. I mean that that's a that's a that's a ten million dollar question. Right. Well um, I always ask the ten million dollar question. That's yeah, my you job. Sure do. I mean yeah, I mean you come <laughs> you always come come with it. I think one of the things that I I think one of the things that we get caught up with in, in the debate is we you the the terminology and what the terminology means and what our particular specialized language means within particular kind of of, of academic and intellectual spaces. And, and, I, and I want to make something very clear that ultimately what we're talking about is, is the recognition of humanity, right? We're talking about the recognition of humanity and that at bottom we're human beings that whose various kind of variables in terms of our sexuality, in terms of our race, in terms of our gender, informs what our experiences of humanity are, right? So there's ways in which that intersectionality uh, can speak to the fact that when you start thinking about um, um, uh, who is most vulnerable in terms of going to prison, in terms of police brutality and and, and, um, disenfranchisement economically, then that intersectionality model actually points to black men as being more vulnerable in that particular context, and and Mudua, um points that out in uh, her edited collection on 
progressive black masculinity. So internet sectionality is not simply about kind of situating a kind of uh, politics of oppression between black men and women, but really speaking to these elements of our humanity and the ways in which we can build lines of solidarity. And I think part of what that uh, I think part of what that means is, and you had said it before, really being honest about our own failings. I have a 12-year-old son and a, and a soon-to-be 9-year-old daughter, and I can tell you that when my son hit middle school last year, I mean, you, you, are you talking about narratives of hyper-masculinity? I mean, suddenly I had a, a kid who was not interested in football, was not interested in basketball, who was marginally interested in rap music, who, you know, was marginally interested in, in, in Jordan brand sneakers and all this stuff. And he gets to middle school, right? And he gets to middle school, and he is immediately indoctrinated into that. And I see his whole kinds of behaviors about uh, those kinds of things change. And I see, you know, and, and there are, of course, studies about how people are, you know, how our, our young boys are, are socialized. But I see this in in the in, in the flesh in terms of, of my son and having conversations about, you know, being 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 gay or being a real man or having sex and all these kind of things. And so part of what we have to do, I think, is start talking about and start developing programs that are beyond our school systems, right? The programs that actually that our young men and our young women can invest in that will help them to think differently about themselves and also differently about their masculinity. There's a program that I just got back uh, from participating on the panel at Ohio State about black girls and silencing. We need more programs like that that are community-based to begin to have these kind of dialogues where people know what the resources are, they know how to, you know, get some literature on this. They have people that can, you know, that are experienced as counselors, that are experienced in, in these various kind of um, fields, including social work. They help them negotiate these kind of things because these are systemic problems and institutionalized problems. They can't simply be resolved by, you know, a good speech at the pulpit or even one of us writing, you know, uh, a very useful book, even though that certainly has its place. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, Dr. Curry, yes, one one of the concerns uh, I think that our audience might also have in this um, over the last two years, uh, the voice of black female feminism mm. is well, black feminism. You see, you see, one of the things is we've got to have a core black. Feminism that is a tent that invites the voices, the oppression, the uh, dismissal, and the inequalities and inequities for both black men and black women. Mm -hmm. And I think that this movement that we're seeing does something like um, strong, powerful equities for black women and and oh by the way also black men right right yeah mm -hmm. i think I'm that is to, happening 
Right, and I and I have to I guess I have to disagree with uh, Dr. Ickert here. Um, I think intersectionality doesn't really address black men in this way. Uh, you know, um, Althea Matua actually just published a very recent article in 2013 on uh, multidimensionality and masculinity, and intersectionality and feminism, uh, where she actually concedes that intersectionality uh, engages black men with the idea that gender simply doesn't fit them, that they've always historically had a privilege uh, over black women. And she says that, yeah. look, we've made the mistake because we should have listened to Darren Hutchison back in 2000 and, well, 2001 and understood that we need a multidimensional approach precisely because we can't really seem to find black male privilege anywhere in the world. And, and we can't find it in economics. We can't find it in education. Uh, we, and we certainly can't find it in racial profiling, right? Uh, mm-hmm. So even her, even she's revising her thought to reflect more of the empirical and sociological reality that confronts us when we're dealing with black men and boys. Uh, I think that one of the issues we have in trying to address this question is is not so much about you know what we fear black men becoming or imitating, but the structural forces in our communities uh, that are pushing black men and uh, women towards certain gender roles. So if you take mm-hmm. uh, away jobs, if you take employment away, if you take education away, and you put people in poverty, and you don't give them any hope, and you you have you know rampant drug abuse, rampant crime, uh, violence in their communities and their neighborhoods, we can't be very surprised that, that violence makes its way into his home, into the homes. If you have black men who've been unemployed and are on on a downward trajectory, meaning that even if they started in the middle class because they they have such low employment they fall into the uh, to the to the bottom class or lower classes extremely quickly you know then you're going to see certain types of depression frustration drug abuse substance abuse incarceration recidivism etc that are going to directly affect not only them and other black men in the neighborhood and community but also their spouses right and the same mm-hmm. thing happens for black women black women who you know uh who who hit who are unemployed who you know suffer from depression have the exact same things happen even though we don't pay attention to them so i think that if we're going to be serious about how we study black men, we have to study black men in their communities, not them as problems, but them as victims of systems that are producing certain types of behaviors. Because we see the same behaviors in terms of poverty, in terms of incarceration, drug abuse, alcohol abuse, etc., run across the gambit of races. But then when we have these conversations that focus on masculinity, specifically black masculinity, black masculinity then becomes kind of the dumping point. Right, that we put all the negativity, all the black pathology into uh, for the locus and the, and the starting points of our conversations. So I think that if we're going to be serious about programs, we need to have a serious conversation about economics. We have to have a serious conversation about education. Uh, we have to have a very serious conversation about mental health in our communities, as we were talking about uh, surrounding the Ray Rice issue. We need to have very serious conversations um, about domestic abuse and the bidirectionality. Of, of domestic abuse, the way that women hit men and men escalate, the way that men have historically been uh, sexually abused at the hands of women and other men. We don't do a good job talking about that in our communities or uh, providing services to do that. So if we're going to change the conversation about black masculinity, then we have to start talking about real issues, right? Intimate partner violence and intimate partner homicide. Because there was a time not too long ago, from 79 up to the 80s, where black men were killed most by their intimate partners. And we see a change of economics, and we see that flowing down to black women. So, again, we have these changing dynamics in in our communities. We have these changing dynamics that are happening to black people generally that's not easily encapsulated by black feminism or intersectionality. 
So, you know, mm-hmm. my work suggests that we need to really pull from the actual work of black women um, without the name of feminism, that we need to focus on mm-hmm. black men and black women who take our community seriously, meaning that we're looking at how racism, classism, you know, poverty, et cetera, drug abuse, et cetera, are affecting men, women, and children, right? Because we largely, this whole conversation, we leave children out of these equations that they're not intimated and socialized into the cycles of violence that we find in these communities. I think that once scholars start having those kind of conversations, beyond the kind of intersectional or identity politic conversations, then we'll start integrating a more transdisciplinary approach that focuses on how certain things affect black men and women and how those effects on black men and women thereby affect and socialize children into the very cycles and, and, and patterns that we see. And again, I think that one of the problems we have with black men is that we don't see them as being worthy of study. I mean, the real issue here is, you know, and I think you can see it in the disagreement between me and Dr. Eckert, is that in terms of attention and recognition of whose problems uh, are in the front light, you know, my argument is that we need to study both. And by making the argument that there's a trade-off, as we've done in things like Ferguson versus Renisha McBride, et cetera, it takes, it takes the seriousness away from what we need to focus on. We're focusing on subjects right. rather than problems, right? So I think we've that, got to that's, take a that's break. how we have to deal with men. Absolutely. We are talking with Dr. David E. Eichard and Dr. Tommy J. Curry here at Our Common Ground, if you've just joined us, talking about what is black male feminism and how it fits in the theories and the struggle for black liberation. This is Our Common Ground. Thank you so much for joining us, and we're going to take a break, and when we come back, we'll continue this dialogue between two of the most respected scholars in our nation. There is absolutely no evidence to support the statement that we're the greatest country in the world. We're 7th in literacy, 27th in math, 22nd in science, 49th in life expectancy, 178th in infant mortality, 3rd in median household income, number 4 in labor force, and number 4 in exports. We lead the world in only three categories. Number of incarcerated citizens per capita, number of adults who believe angels are real, and defense spending. When you ask what makes us the greatest country in the world, I don't know what the fuck you're talking about. What we see before our eyes, the sky is green and the grass is blue. But one thing you can't deny, these people are sabotaging this economy. And uh, these people are sabotaging this country. An alpha on TruthWorks Network, the best of political pushback. Go for it, alpha. The Alpha Show. Economic terrorism, political terrorism, racial terrorism, cultural 
annihilation, electoral elimination. Time for self-examination. Lessons for black liberation. What should our response be? Liberation lessons from the masters on our common ground tonight and your response. This is our common ground. I'm Janice Graham with my co-host Alpha of India Declare, real, raw, and right now. It's the I Declare Show with India Declare. 11 a.m. Friday and Saturday. End your week and start your weekend with real, raw, and right now. 11 a.m. Blog Talk Radio, I Declare It. You're listening to Our Common Ground with Janice Graham. Transforming truth to power, one broadcast at a time. And now to Our Common Ground with Janice Graham. And we thank you for being with us. We want to remind you that you can find us on Facebook at Our Common Ground Radio. And join us in our Twitter feed at Janice OCG. Don't forget our fine programming at TruthWorks Network, uh, the Alpha Show on Friday night, and coming up this month at TruthWorks is the Global Village uh, talk show with Dr. Peter E. Matthews and Dr. Reverend Susan K. Smith, and we'll tell you more about that as we go into this broadcast. Uh, Tonight, our topic is uh, black male feminism and black liberation. It's a dialogue between two wonderful scholars, Dr. David Eichard and Dr. Tommy Curry. We thank you for being with us, and don't forget, we are here each Saturday night at 10 Uh, Dr. Eichard and Dr. Curry, before we went to break, one of the things we wanted to bring this conversation into was a movement to contextualize unique experiences and examine how black male feminism informs a new coalition within our own community. Mm-hmm. Um one of the concerns I'm sure many of us have had over the last month uh, in regard to both the Michael Brown and Eric Garner right. uh, murders. Uh, and, and and I found it particularly interesting that there was not a great deal of examination mm of of the issues around why a whole an entire community was so disorganized and and so disenfranchised mm. and then the Ray Rice I mean I never heard of Ray Rice before I am not a football fan right. so um we you know we don't do a lot of football in 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 our house um so I never heard of this man, but when I saw his behavior and I began to think about it in terms of what informed 
that behavior. Then this other man who 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 punishes uh, a a four year old with a, a a weapon. I mean, mm-hmm. a switch is a weapon, as far as I'm concerned. I'm mm-hmm. I'm not one of those people who think that children ought to be hit for any reason. Mm-hmm. Uh, so. How do we begin to take this, David and and Tommy, and and form something that works for all of us—the women who were victimized in the in 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 in, in, in these instances, the women who are victimized, who become their their humanity becomes invisible. Right. In our own community, right. under some right. structural oppression that we drug, uh, not kicking and screaming voluntarily into our and uh, in, into what the mainstream media keeps calling our the culture, the black culture. I don't know any black culture where mm. women are not respectful of the men in their lives. As help me out here. How do we how do we use all of this to have a radical feminism that works for black people? Well, I mean, what I would say is that I, I, you know, I think it's fundamentally dangerous. Okay, when we suggest, you know, as as many folks have suggested, that somehow somebody can. You know, a, a woman who is substantially weaker than you, physically as a man, can do something that would prompt you to unleash that kind of violence onto them. Uh, we know that, in fact, um, um, black black women suffer uh, at sexual assault and violence at higher rates than white women. And, of course, culturally the problem is that black women often not perceived as being um, emotionally vulnerable or fully human in the same way that um, white women are or our children or or our boys. I'll give you an example of what I'm talking about in terms of our children, which hopefully will kind of put some of what I'm saying into context. When when you think about the children in Ferguson, for example, their, um, their city was basically under military rule and on fire uh, for several weeks, so much so that they canceled the first week or so of school. And then when these children who had seen all of this uh, turmoil in their community finally made their way back to school, the superintendent of schools in St. Louis um, sent a memo to the school to say that if the children ask about the Mike Brown uh, shooting, that you should change the subject. Now, if this happened in Columbine, if this happened in Newtown, there would be an army of counselors, there would be an army of therapists, there would be an, and then there would be a kind of national sympathy and empathy for those children, for those communities. And we simply, we simply don't have that type of... Uh, capital. We simply don't have that kind of um, sympathy. And so we're still dealing with the level of second-class citizenry here, which makes it very difficult, I believe, for 
oftentimes for uh, black men to acknowledge when there's an, an issue that we need to attend to. And that this is not to say that black men, um, there aren't those of us who don't rise to the occasion, but I'm talking about, you know, um, at, at, in the aggregate, it makes it very difficult when you see things like Ray Rice and you see things like Adrian Peterson put up as being somehow representative of a pathological black community or a pathological um, black male. Black men are not pathological, okay? If anything that is pathological, we live in a pathological white supremacist society. That's what's pathological. Oftentimes what you see in terms of black men responding to these dynamics is our negotiation of this pathological system. And black women, our negotiation of this pathological system. So I think in terms of trying to uh, address these issues, I think what we have to do is to make sure that we're not creating these kind of false binaries and 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 that we that we try and tune out as difficult as it may be because I think, still think there's a, a level of double consciousness that we are still negotiating in the United States in which we're always uh hyper mindful of of the white surveillance that we are under. Um, but we have to get to the point where we can own these things and address these kinds of things despite how, you know, we're going to be mischaracterized in the in the media because that's going to happen, right? That is going to happen regardless. But we can't, regardless of whether or not that media spin is going to try and turn all black men into sexual abusers or, or white beaters, we still have to address that these patterns of domestic violence do exist, and they don't exist just in black space. Obviously, they exist, you know, at, at similar rates in, in in the dominant society. This is not a black this is not a black problem. This is an American problem. But we need to be able to address that, and not simply want to defend the Ray Rice's or the Adrian Petersons of the world. Mm-hmm. That's his name, Adrian Peterson. Mm-hmm. But let me but, ask you both. Um. If black male feminism is built on the structure of black feminism, right? I see the I, I see the thing I see them very differently. Mm-hmm. How can we be successful in pulling together and charging charging forth? and challenging the system of white supremacy and building a movement of black liberation for the future. Well, I think I think you're... See, I think the problem when we talk about black men feminism, this is what I was intimating to uh, earlier, is that many of the same theories and assumptions that we get from, you know, black feminism makes its way into many black male feminist positions and literature. Uh, so I don't think it gives an accurate depiction. And again, you know, going back to Matua, like, you know, her criticism now of intersectionality off of the back of Darren Hutchinson, or even the work that's coming up, they're saying, look, black men have never, uh, as a cultural you know, issue, try to imitate uh, white masculinity to the extent that many black feminists argue. Uh, I think we need a different term. Uh, I think we need mm-hmm, to take mm-hmm. seriously uh, a new study of black men that takes 
that's specific to their views. Uh, like I said, I mean, you know, people have not talked about Eldridge Cleaver's homosexuality. Uh, we've seen it mentioned a few places, but nobody pays attention to it. They don't put that into the notions of, you know, some of his struggles with sexuality generally, with violence generally, and his interpretation as misogyny towards women. That that doesn't become discussed. So we still have these very heteronormative or black machoistic views of black men that resonate with the birth of black feminism in this country, and it's kind of served as a disciplinary mythology, right, a type of decadence, mm-hmm. to use Lewis Gordon's word, um, in our study of black men. So I don't think that our studies today are honest um, when we look at them. Um, I think another example of that is, you know, when we talk about things like domestic abuse or sexual abuse in our communities, you know, you're absolutely right. Black women are disproportionately affected by domestic abuse, but so are black men and so are black children. Right, black men are are involved in intimate partner violence at rates that are three or four times their white counterparts. And what I'm trying to constantly push is that these are environmental and sociological problems that cannot be captured by our understanding of gender and the relationship between men and women. Right? I mean, I, I posted a few days ago about the foster mother that had 15 counts of rape against these young black boys. Now, what do we think is going to happen to these young black men when they get into relationships? What mental health perspectives are we introducing in our conversation of gender that's going to deal with the types of resentment, abuse, trauma, and hate they have towards this black woman that they may put on other black women because she is a, uh, she is an abuser, right? She's sexually molested and raped these children. So what I'm saying is that we don't have a full picture of domestic abuse and its causes. We rely on decadent Duluth models that say that, you know, men are involved in abuse largely because they're men in exercising power, despite the fact that the research shows that it's bidirectional. Men hit women, men escalate. The fact that it's informed mostly by poverty and drug and substance abuse, none of these conversations makes it into our literature. So I think that we, we need to have a, a, a much more comprehensive uh, statement about how we deal with these things. Now, I actually do agree with Dr. Iker when he's talking about, you know, we're responding to a society of white supremacy. It's Iker. Uh, sir, sorry, sir? <laughs> Iker. I'm sorry. Iker. 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 I'm sorry. You know, Dr. Iker, you know, I actually – I apologize. I actually agree with the brother when he's talking about the pathology, you know, in our societies. But, you know, that pathology is never really measured. We kind of put that as an aside, right, because intersectionality says that despite the pathology, black men have a privilege. And we've largely done this on the basis of sex and sexual abuse and domestic violence. We ignore the historical truths of people like Thomas Foster, you know, who shows that black men have historically been raped during slavery. We ignore all the arguments that we're getting even from Daniel McGuire talking about black men being raped by white women during the civil rights movement and being executed uh, when, when those relationships were to make in public. Same thing with Martha Holdsworth, right? There's a lot of things that show us that black men have been dealing with the same types of sexual victimization, but we tell a, a kind of black machoistic and heteronormative mythology about black men that, that assumes that they're not part of this. So a lot of the issues that we have with black male feminism or black feminism generally, I think, is the same thing that you know Darren Hutchison pointed out almost 20 years ago, namely that we have an issue conceptualizing the sexual diversity and the sexual vulnerability of black men within theory. We kind of give a nod to it, right? I mean, I made this point about Trayvon Martin. You know, we, we, we when we were reacting to the difference in attention between, say, you know, Trayvon Martin and the other women at that time that died, the big one was uh, Rakia Boyd, you know, people were saying, oh, but if it was a female, you know, she would have been killed or she would have raped and killed, right? But we ignore that uh, Rachel Gentile said that, look, he could be a pedophile. He could be a sexual predator because we don't imagine that black male bodies, especially young black men, are subject to sexual abuse and rape, both by women and men. And this is something that, you know, is really missing in the gender literature in terms of how we talk about black male 
black men, black male privilege, and black male exists in this country. Because we certainly have the historical records to show that this has happened. We certainly have mm-hmm. the, the sociological data that shows that this happens. We even have the psychological data that shows that this happens. But it never makes itself into any of the literature that we deal with in terms of black men when we're dealing mm-hmm. with liberal arts. So I think it's so, so that's what, what you're I think, suggesting is that uh, in in this whole body of of study mm-hmm. and as an application to black liberation that Absolutely. there needs to be a new feminist theory of design. Well I wouldn't call it feminist, but yeah, we do need a do we need a new apparatus. Right? Mm-hmm. We need a new mm-hmm. apparatus. You know, Ru- right. Ruby Sales was uh with us a couple of weeks ago while she was down in Ferguson and one of the things she talked about is that we need because we need a new language. Mhm. And and I'm I'm really focused on that as the two of you talk that maybe the word feminism is getting in our way. And maybe it is a a, a part of the language that uh doesn't play a real effective role in how we represent reality because when you begin to talk about inclusivity and communal relationships in our in our community that maybe this language doesn't have a very good communications ladder mm-hmm. well i would what do you I think would, about it? i mean david you wrote the book well, on I, I mean what i would what what i would say is that that particular issue is is not a new issue i mean that's why um, um that's why Alice Walker coined the term womanism um mm-hmm. to try and uh address the the kind of uh negative political baggage of of feminism because feminism you know politically was largely understood as the domain of you know white women of privilege and so that mm-hmm. that particular kind of Argument is not a new argument. It certainly is it's no less legitimate now than it was then. But it's it's not a new argument. And in fact, there you know our our queer brothers and sisters have um, for a long time. I know Maurice Wallace uh, 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 wrote a book. Um, uh, his his first book was addressing the the the, the issues of kind of uh, black men and uh, black boys and sexual assault within the context of slavery. Uh, ex Hemphill, um mm-hmm. uh, uh, wrote a whole, uh, uh, edited a whole uh, anthology within the context of a black queer identity, not only talking about people like El- Elvidge Cleaver and his, you know, um, his dynamics of, of sexuality, but also what's, what's, I'm, what am I, I'm blanking on, uh, Amir Baraka had a similar kind of dynamic in terms of his his sexual identity that that he uh, uh, masked a lot, and that's also part of that critique as well. Dwight McBride mm-hmm. talked about it. So it's mm-hmm. not that these uh, um, it's not that these uh, issues. Uh, Devon Carbato has talked about these recently as well. So it's not that these issues, in terms of black boys as victims of sexual assault, are off the radar. They are certainly on the radar. Um, but I, but I also think we have to be. I'll, I'll make two points. I think we have to be. Uh, we have to be. Um, uh, we have to be careful not to equate the 
not that these issues of sexual molestation in terms of black boys are not serious or real, but often what happens is we'll take something like that that is certainly real um, and, and significant and serious and then make a direct e- e- equation with the ways in which kind of black women are sexualized and dominated in black spaces. And I would argue that the numbers in terms of how that plays out are not on par. In other words, um, the cases of black black boys being molested, and a lot of, of course, we know that a lot of this goes undocumented, but the cases of uh, black men being, for example, killed in domestic violence, you look at the black mm-hmm. men who are killed in domestic violence versus the black women who are killed in domestic violence, you know, it's not even a, you know, it's not even a fair number, right? That, so so we have to be careful even as we, because I'm all with what, 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 what Brother Kerry is saying about complicating the notion of black masculinity, because I think that it's important and that's, that's a very valid point. But I think oftentimes what happens is when we engage these particular kind of issues, we end up saying, well, you know, black men are abused too. Black men are, are, are whatever too in this context. And what it leads to is like the, we, we, it's like when Rihanna was abused by Chris Brown, or even even in the kind of the the, the this extreme case in which, you know, Ray Rice literally punches his uh, fiance now wife, knocks her completely unconscious, and drags her body out of the elevator like she's a rag doll. We. You know, oftentimes we, you know, it, it it encourages encourages us to make these arguments like, well, what did she do to provoke that, right? What did mm-hmm. she do to provoke? What is, well, what that's that not an point? argument, or or a question that I would even entertain. Exactly. Um, exactly. You know, and so I what, think what that that is the kind of design exactly. that I mean, we have got. We let me just say this. We have all these manhood training programs Mm -hmm. going on, workshops and stuff across the country. And uh, we are concerned about making sure that black boys in our communities, in some places, some of you all not doing anything, and I said it and I mean it. Um, But one of the things that we are not doing is that we are not looking at models which perpetuate the dialogue between black boys and black girls mm-hmm. about mm-hmm. their humanity. Right. We are not pushing a capability approach uh, about what we are capable of as a people, as a black nation. Mm-hmm. And when we don't do that, we're going to just continue to have these kinds of conversations about the the intersectionality of gender in our community, which mm-hmm. I think is not helpful. Right. Mm-hmm. But you see, and Janice, I think that um, I think that you know your your, your argument is absolutely correct. But again, I think that. Some of the issues that we're talking about, I mean, you know, I've read Carbottle's work, uh, McBride's work, et cetera, but I think some of the issues that we talk about is how does the theory explain them? 
right? I mean, you know, Carbato is a strict intersectionalist, so he still does believe that there is some black male privilege, right, associated despite all the empirical evidence to the contrary. So when these issues get talked about, they don't get talked about as the center of black men's experiences, right? They they get say, oh, this happens to them, but, you know, black men are generally killed, right? We don't center sexual abuse, uh, you know, and again, you know, I, I think that when we look at the data, we don't we don't see the kind of disparity uh, that that Dr. Eckert uh, was, was was suggesting. Uh, we see levels that are are very similar. Uh, now, in terms of intimate partner homicide, of course, you know, as I as I spoke about earlier, you do see the sharp change, right? So, whereas you saw black men comprising a large number back in the you know late seventies, eighties to the early nineties, that number is certainly flipped, where black men are about thirty three percent and black women comprise sixty six to sixty seven percent, right? That's what I'm saying that there's these changing dynamics that we need to attend to in our communities, and these are very real problems. But if we mm-hmm. if we suggest that this is only one dynamic, right? And this is what I'm trying to push. If we say that there's only one dynamic because black men abuse black women, right? Or we don't really look at bidirectionality, you know, how black women abuse black men and vice versa. Then we're, you see what I'm saying? We're centering this 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 narrative about who's the cause of abuse, who's victimized by abuse, who's victimized by sexual assault uh, primarily, as if that number matters more. And, you know, and I think that one of the problems I have with the way that black feminism deals with this issue is that we're fine to say this on the case of black men. Well, we don't want to, you know, if we, if we look and accept that black men are sexually abused or, you know, domestically abused, that when we concentrate on that, we don't want to flip it because those numbers aren't big enough when compared to black women. But then the minute we talk about the same argument in terms of racial profiling or police brutality, we have a moral call that says, well, even though black women are the smaller number, we need to center black women because they're raised. Now, I have no problem centering anybody that's a victim of white supremacy, violence, et cetera, right? My work is constantly saying, you know, these are all interconnected. I argue it's because of a masculine ontology that's placed on black women generally. But the, the political, the identity politic behind these types of blog posts and these kind of public um, media displays our analyses of these situations are completely contradictory given what we've just heard. So I think that we have to have a different perspective about how black men uh, are dealing with this type of abuse, how they're responding to it, how it becomes ingrained in their psyches, and how this affects black women and children, right? Because this is this is a situation that doesn't simply just talk about black men and then what affects them versus black women, but rather how the issues of black women affect black men and vice versa, right? And that's not the mm-hmm. perspective so we have. So you're talking you're you're talking about what you're describing as a form of favoritism, and in our community. That kind of favoritism, a favoritism for either black male or black female, and it just seems like the voice of feminism is not David Eichard or Byron uh, Hurt uh, or Mark Anthony Neal. The voice seems to be female, and for some out there, it is an act of horizontal hostility where mm. oppressed groups are fighting among themselves. And one of the things that I'm looking for is that how do you break the cycle of that? Right. Well, I think I they mean, slip back well, and forth, to be honest with I mean, this whole issue, this whole mm-hmm. issue, I keep seeing it coming up and up. People call here on this program and say, you know, well, I think black males are becoming more feminized and it's a real problem, you know, especially the right. yeah. the ranting uh, black right. nationalists um, right. who still are living at the in the in the in, at the moment of the murder 
assassination of Malcolm X, right. uh, the black men are becoming more feminized. All this is about the feminization. And then on the other hand, and here is the horizontal hostility, mm. black women want to be men. Right, right. Right, right. And we're right. not even going to talk about yeah. the homophobia part because right. yeah. that, right. you know. right. Right, right. So I mean, but, my but question I mean, but, is about how do you how do you move toward challenging our community to embrace some kind of universal paradigm or dichotomy of behavior which mm. respects our humanity, our history, and looks at our oppression as open, free for all. Right, 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 right. Well, I, I, let me go back to uh, an issue uh, that uh, Brother Kerry um, uh, just made that I think that is uh, one that um, I, I want to underscore as, as as a as a as an important one. Right. I mean, we can a- agree on some um, um, some fundamental levels about uh, uh, theoretically how we're you know coming at a similar kind of mm-hmm. problem, but I think at bottom we both love black people mm-hmm. and we want the best for our, our black communities. And I appreciate the fact that he's thinking about this seriously and doing some important work along these mm-hmm. lines. And, one and when you that make that would, point, we're going to have to go to some callers. We do have people who have been holding on for a long time. Uh, okay. Um, one of the things that we, we, have, we, we cannot, my brother just said, and I want to underscore this because I think there's a crucial point here, that we cannot simply address these issues that you're raising outside of the the the, the economy of black disenfranchisement. In other words, when you look at all of the factors that um, when it comes to domestic violence and some of the other issues that we're dealing with, um, it, it a lot of it comes down to poverty, right? And so if you if you don't address the issue of poverty, right, then it becomes very difficult to resolve some of these issues. Now, we can address some dynamics in terms of dialogue and programs, but, you know, there there, there will be no bigger um, resolution to some of these problems than improving the economic outcomes of black communities. Because even when even if you are middle class, because most black people, even middle class, live in black neighborhoods who and te- black neighborhoods who tend to be more impoverished than white neighborhoods. So even if you are middle class, even if you're educated, if you are living in those neighborhoods, you your children are subject to the same type of educational challenges, social challenges as um, poorer black children. And so this is a this. The, the economy of this, right, is a major part of this discussion. So we can't simply dismiss this, you know, the issue of poverty out of this. Poverty is a is is a is a key ingredient here. Mhm, mhm, mhm. Um, I I think that that is the 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 place in the road toward a black liberation movement that we have got to stay on. One of the things that I've said on this show and is that we have got to look at where we live, where we eat, hmm. where we are educated. And we've got to look at it not 
I mean, everybody's was was last month talking about Ferguson is every community in this nation, but they're still focused on Ferguson rather than focused on the place where they could be. I was watching the city council meeting in 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 Ferguson, Missouri, over the internet, and I was thinking to myself. All the people who are on Twitter and Facebook talking about this meeting tonight, can mm. they talk about the meeting that is happening in the place where they pay taxes? Right. We're gonna we're gonna go to our phones. If you're just joining us, this is our common ground. There is nowhere ever any place else that holds more sacred black truth about issues and events in our lives than right here at Our Common Ground. You cannot get two hours of dialogue on the same issue and on critical issues with the same brilliant minds that we bring here, and we hope that you'll join us each Saturday night. We're going to go. 919 has been waiting for a very long time. Thank you so very much for, for joining us here at Our Common Ground with Dr. David Icard and Dr. Tommy J. Curry. You're on the air. I respect you and thank you for your call. Thank you, Jason. Nine one one. Am I on? Can you hear me? Yes. 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 Okay. Good evening. Uh, I'm, I'm Terrence Muhammad. Uh, greetings to everyone. Mm-hmm. My question is regarding uh, a discussion that you were having earlier pertaining to um, the lack of reciprocation or how black men are not properly reciprocating regarding the outrage when black women are oppressed as opposed to how black women are outraged when black men are oppressed. You all spoke about it earlier. This seems to be a discussion that's often occurring. So my question is, when these discussions take place, are we, when we paint with such a broad brush, are we talking like, is this a socioeconomic kind of an argument or educational level? Are we speaking about black men and women of a certain class who are not acting in outrage? Or are we speaking about all black men and all black women? Because it's not like when these discussions take place, it's not often including people who are impoverished. Or it seems mm-hmm. to be more so mm-hmm. it seems mm-hmm. to be more so tailored towards like celebrity uh, intellectuals or celebrities in general. So I'm curious as to are we speaking about like black men who are probably impoverished, black women who are impoverished? Because I often see a lot of black men from inner cities who are Outrage when they hear things happen regarding, you know, travesties regarding men, whether it's a black man or a black woman, as opposed to I'm often seeing a lot of black women in inner cities who are pretty much apathetic. I don't know if it's due to lack of uh, knowledge or being uninformed regarding certain things. So I just wanted, was curious as to when people frame these conversations about black men not properly reciprocating regarding the outrage, are we speaking, how broad are we speaking, I guess this is a question. Um, Dr. Curry, you want to take it first and then we'll go to Dr. Sure, sure. Icard. Well, brother, I think I think that you're you're hitting on a key point that I'm always asking myself, right? Uh, you know, I do intellectual history, so my work really does document the different aspects of black male and female uh, coordination. Uh, I think that when we speak about this today, I mean, if we follow social media and kind of the blogs that are making these arguments, um, it largely seems to be an, an impressional type of sensibility that, you know, we march for, you know, Trayvon Martin. We didn't march for Renisha McBride. Uh, or the numbers weren't as large. Uh, you know, I'm the first one to concede that when we talk about black people generally, uh, I don't think we do a very good job. You know, I mean, we had 300, almost 400 brothers shot uh, in 2012, 
2013. We only know of four or five of them, right? Uh, so I, I think we do a very bad job of that generally. Uh, but I think I think that you're right. I think that it's looking more towards peers, you know, people who have political visibility, um, academics, uh, people who need to take up certain types of positions um, that that many black feminists and many black uh, progressives uh, think aren't being taken up in regards to to black women. Um, I'm not very comfortable with that with that kind of argument because uh, I, I don't think that it it has a lot of empirical basis. Uh, I think we do a black job a bad job with black people generally, and I think that when we do end up marching for black men, it usually does nothing. Uh, I think that we need to look at results rather than attention. Uh, but that being said, I think we need to do a better job in covering black people who are victims of police brutality and violence generally. Uh, but yeah, I think there's a huge class argument there, right? Who are the people that have power to politically organize, and what are we counting as political organization? Is it that we're marching on the street for the people the same way? Is that we're sharing them on Black Twitter? I I, I don't know the standard. And I don't think one's really been articulated. Right. Thank you, Dr. Well, one of the things. Let me let me jump in here. Um, one of the things that I think is very problematic in all organizing and all educating and all mobilizing in the black community is that mm. we are not reaching people who could benefit mm, from the voices um, that are resonating uh, the challenges before us as a people. Right. Um, I am a late. big absolutely. proponent of street corner academies. Mm-hmm. If we're going to talk about black male feminism and we're going to talk about a new way of exercising, experiencing, and expressing masculinity, then we need to be on the street corners talking to black boys and Mm. young black men, and we need to be reaching all these men that we're talking about that might be missing or whoever they are. We need to be reaching to the grassroots of our mm-hmm. country, not the people who listen to MSNBC, not the people who Twitter, uh, Twitter, with you there. black Twitter, you know, yeah. not the people who are on Facebook, not the people who are on the whatever the other thing is, the Twitter. people who are not going to pick up the nation and read it or whatever, yeah. uh, or, or the, um, the feminist wire or or, or pick up Dr. Icard's book or read um, the writings of Dr. Tommy J. Curry. We need to be able to figure out how to formulate a language for which working people and poor people can accommodate in making the transformation in their lives so that black people become empowered. And I'm going to go to Dr. Eichard on the question. Yeah, I mean, I think part of that um, has to do with uh, kind of rethinking black respectability politics. Um, I think that... um, uh, I think for for a long time, and, and I, again, I go back to the Moynihan Report and how so many prominent black civil rights um, um, leaders endorsed it um, because it imagined um, the the black community as somehow pathologically matriarchal, and it and it basically set up a tension between black men and black women and black women being constructed as emasculators and and their roles 
as, you know, um, as breadwinners, as being, you know, destructive. Well, what we know historically is one of the one of the reasons that black women were in, in the workforce in, in the ways that they were in the, the primary, in really the only jobs that most of them could get in the, in the 1960s and 1970s was domestic work, right? Yeah. And so they were, they were stuck in very menial jobs. But the reason why they had to work in the ways that they had to work was because literally black men were being disenfranchised, right? And so that particular kind of model was nefarious in the sense that it uh, did not, uh, hold accountable the white supremacist structures that had actually destroyed the black family, and then the ways in which the black black family uh, nuclear family was trying to kind of and, com- and communities by extension were trying to negotiate those uh, uh, domains of white supremacy, the traumas of white supremacy, economic disenfranchisement, were then being somehow vilified, right? Mm-hmm. And so I think what 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 um, that whole respectability discourse did and still does is it suggests that somehow if we get our young black men to pull up their pants, to speak proper English, to um, present themselves as non-threatening to white people, then somehow our, you know, our communities will change. Well, the reality is, if you if you deprive the community of economic power and economic stability, then these problems will persist, right? Even if all those things are in place, right, these problems will persist. So I, I think it's important for us to be able to address that particular kind of element there as we try to think towards a more kind of solution-oriented uh, discussion. But one of the things that I think we also have to do is we have to be very clear about who our allies are, mm-hmm. that black women have to understand that black men are the greatest allies and the appropriate ally for struggle for against inequities. It is It is not... It is not the role, nor will it ever be the role, of the women community universally to support and to, I mean, I I, I don't get how we now in 2014 don't understand that the traditional model of feminism was a model that was created for white women. We right. have to have that in place in our brains. We we and the other is to have a better understanding of the role that womanist, black womanist can do in the greater community as a caller is is uh inquiring about. Uh nine one one uh nine one nine, I thank you for your call. Uh, did you want? Did you have another uh, comment you wanted to make? Yeah. Well, uh, well first, I appreciate the uh, response. I, I, I appreciate. I enjoyed listening to the conversation so far. But yes, I was really just trying to figure out, like, far as like, um, when people make those blanket statements. I, I don't know if they're looking at percentages when they speak about the percentage of black men who do not 
respond in defense of black women? Because I think those sometimes those statements are a bit inflammatory. And it comes off mm-hmm. as an attack. And my problem is, as you all are discussing uh, some of the issues regarding feminism and, and black, uh, fem- black male feminism, and sometimes, I guess as Dr. Curry is getting to regarding coming up with a new term, because sometimes the term can come off as somewhat divisive. And that's my issue as a black person who we consider myself to be pretty much pro-black and for the black family at large. I think these terms and some of these arguments, especially with social media being so accessible now, these narratives that come about regarding black males' apathy for black women, I just find those arguments to be pretty divisive. So mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. if anyone believe those statements have any merit, I would like to see some type of data to substantiate some of these wild claims, in my opinion. So that's what I was kind of getting at when, you know, it's like a 30% that. of black male apathy, 40% of black male apathy. When these broad statements are made, I'm trying to figure out, statistically speaking, what are we saying? Well, well, one of the one of the problems is that there has not been enough specific research. Mm-hmm. Um, we have just uh, simply assumed a problem that we haven't proven. Right. And I think that, and I and I, and I appreciate uh, I, the brother's question. I, I think that you know, as I spoke uh, said before, like Evelyn Simmons' work. Uh, does a really good job of evaluating black men's political attitudes towards black women. Uh, you know, and I think it's groundbreaking work. She published her book on um, black feminist politics in 2006 and followed up on, uh, with an article in 2007 uh, about the black gender gap. Uh, but that's only, that's kind of the ending stage of black male public, uh, political public opinion. But mm-hmm. we've had, you know, 10 or 20 years, I mean, Kathleen Blee's work, I mean, uh, even Robert Staples' work back in uh, 78 on the dual dilemma. You know, these, these types of works, you know, talk about black men, you know, certainly being able to hold sexist attitudes, but saying, look, you know, sociologically, they simply don't mirror the type of dominant mm-hmm. patriarchal politics that we get coming from white men. And I think mm-hmm. that when we're talking about black feminism, you know, I, I think you're right, Janice. I was, you know, we don't really talk about the Clonora Hudson Weems. We don't talk about the Oyewumis. We don't talk about the Amadumes. We don't talk about, you know, even the Kathleen Cleavers, right? You know, we don't talk about those people and situate them in the historiography that says that black women had different opinions, different paradigms that really tried to point out kind mm-hmm. of the bourgeois nature of black feminism rising up mm-hmm. in the 1970s because a lot of black women coordinated with black men. Uh, you know, I mean, even when you look at Robert F. Williams' wife, Mabel Williams, she flat out said before she died, look, these black men were on the front lines dying, you know, trying to protect us and the families. This was not a misunderstanding within the culture. But she said mm-hmm. that once it ended, you know, then we have these arguments about gender, et cetera. And Kathleen said the same thing, you know, in one of her 2003 works on uh, race, women, and feminism, black revolutionary women and feminism. So I think, again, we need nuance. We can't ignore, we can't pretend that this doesn't happen. That's not what I'm suggesting. But mm-hmm. we need nuance to talk about how black people and different aspects of black women have dealt with this issue and their different perspectives. I think some of those, I think some of those, um, arguments are actually out there. I think what we have to do, the, the brother talked earlier about historicizing the issue. Um, uh, if you look at it from a historic, historical standpoint, the argument has been made, you know, since the turn of the century, particularly uh, post-Reconstruction, that the way in which the um, black community was going to basically um, survive and develop any kind of, you know, um, uh, uh, equality within the system is it had to reconstruct the kind of 
you know, a white nuclear family with in which the black man was at the head and the and the black woman was in a more subordinate feminist context. Um, that's why by the time we get to you know, the Moynihan report for uh black folks weren't uh you know, black civil rights uh activists were behind it, primarily because it was arguing a, a similar kind of trajectory. I think mm-hmm. I think now when you get to the 20th century, I think what we see is a much more uh, uh, complex uh, picture of um, uh, a complex picture of the black nuclear family. We see a more complex picture of uh, black masculinity, but I think there's still this kind of lingering issue, and you see it within the context of respectability politics, mm-hmm. that 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 nuclear patriarchal family structure is still aspirational. Um, But when you actually look, even if you look at, you know, uh, our studies on black fatherhood, right, what you see is that, you know, you see, well, these these, these black fathers are absent. But when you actually look at the data, you know, what you actually see is that the black fathers are not absent. No, they just have different arrangements. Right. Right. there's There's a different there's a different dynamic model of the family. So these, these brothers may not necessarily be living at home, but they are active. In fact, when you compare them to white uh, nuclear families, they They're are more active, more active right. in their children's lives. And you, but you wouldn't know it if you listen to what Barack Obama is saying. You wouldn't, you wouldn't know it if you listen to, you know, mainstream media, so on and so forth. Sure. So and, and it's I also think, a bit of mythology I, in our community, so important. you're right. I think it's important for us to kind of understand that particular kind of trajectory and why it is that the sisters have so much, uh, still take issue in that regard, because for a long time, and I still think in, 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 in it's still a very popular and dominant notion, that it's still this kind of you know patriarchal model for the, the nuclear family, even though when you actually look at how black families are constructed, Mm-hmm. It just doesn't. It just doesn't jive. Right, and I, right. I would. I, I I agree with the analysis. I, I would just beg to differ, in the sense that I, I don't know if the Monaghan report was accepted wholesale. Right. I mean, you know, Ladner was a huge critic of it in the seventies, and and you know, Monaghan makes makes the point that you know the black family needs to be more in line with the society because of the economic downturn. And once it caught up, then it could switch to whatever model yeah. it saw fit. So, I mean, but I do understand your point. I, I think that mythology, however, has been linked to, like Obama and some of these other patriarchal policies, but even there it's situated primarily economically. And even Patricia Hill Collins makes a similar point where she says that black women deserve reparations uh, precisely because they couldn't get married to black men, inherit property and wealth. So she said that that's a political economic disadvantage that black women have now next to their white female counterparts that, that accumulates in poverty. So I think that even within feminism, you've had very similar arguments about the role that masculinity or men and the role that men and property have had that even some black feminists have argued about. So I don't, I don't, you know, I would, I would again, I'm, I'm asking for that nuance, right? I don't think that it's completely a, a, a patriarchal idea. I think it's more of a political economic idea that gets coded with who's traditionally associated with owning property and, and what's the ideal state in a people who's, you know, situated in, that, are, that are impoverished. Mm-hmm, and I and I, mm-hmm. and I and I I think we should what should also make clear within this context is that because we we often hear people talk about well wait well don't don't wait on the government to do X Y and Z don't wait on the government to do this or that but historically the reason why we have a white middle class 
right? If you look at the historical trajectory, if you look at the New Deal, if you look at um, the ways in which um, the New Deal monies were 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 block granted to uh, uh, to states and how those states divvied out those various resources specifically based on race, so that um, you know white families got a Absolutely. economic boost, yeah. which actually propelled them in ways and created these kind of disparities that we see today. Even if you look at TARP monies in the way that TARP monies were disproportionately given to white businesses as opposed to people of color. And then when Maxine Waters raised the issue of of this and, and tried to track some of that uh, money back into black communities, she became the face of corruption in terms of TARP, mm-hmm. so on and so forth. Right. So it is important right. as we have these conversations yeah. to see just, because I don't want us to, to begin to kind of think when we talk about poverty rates and these kind of things, thinking about, well, it's just about black folks need to get jobs and they need to get out, whatever, whatever. It, this is well, systemic, right? This is this right. is, that's, this is that's, that's our Cat Nelson's position. It is systemic, right. and we are out of time. And Dr. David Icard and Dr. Tommy Curry, as always, you have ignited our thinking right. uh, about – uh, some very critical issues, and we thank you for being with us tonight. And we're going to have to continue this conversation. And Absolutely. for all of you Appreciate out there, you, thank Appreciate you so it, very Brother much. Yeah. All right. I love you yeah. both, and I love you all out there. And we'll see you next week with Dr. Jahi Isa as we talk about formulating youth programs. Uh, for political empowerment. Thank you so very much for being with us tonight. Take care. Thanks. You rush into battle. We're soldiers. You rush into battle. We're soldiers. We get hurt in the fight. We suck it up and we hold it down and we don't question. I like it or not. So I'm not asking you for the truth. I know the truth. So what I'm asking you is, what is your end game? You've been listening to Our Common Ground. Thank you for tuning in tonight. I'm Janice Graham. If it's Saturday at 10 p.m., I'll be listening for you. Do us a favor and yourself as well. Tell your friends about this broadcast and join us on TruthWorks Network. You can find Our Common Ground on Facebook, on Tumblr, on Pinterest, and Twitter at Janice OCG. Thanks again. And don't forget, I'll be listening for you. This is Our Common Ground. We are Legion. We do not forgive. We do not forget.